Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? Well, that's what we're here to find out. This month, we continue our listener library series, and we're going to play a request from Ryan, who wanted to hear The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and the episode The Iron Coffin. He writes, it's meant to be suspenseful rather than scary, but it's a little creepy. I think it represents a quality production from 1950. Nothing is more American than the hard-boiled detective. Seneca loners with a strong sense of justice, Raymond Chandler's hard-boiled detective was Philip Marlowe. Chandler's first novel was The Big Sleep, and six novels followed. Chandler's writing style was rich and descriptive and known for its effective use of similes. However, Marlowe was different than other detectives of the genre, a college graduate who played chess and liked classical music. Marlowe's first appearance on radio was on Lux Radio Theater on June 11, 1945, starring Dick Powell and Claire Trevor. In April 1947, the summer replacement for Bob Hope was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, airing on NBC and based on the stories of Raymond Chandler. Nineteen of Los Angeles's top detectives were in the studio during the airing of the first show. It wasn't critically well-received, and after the summer run ended, NBC dropped the show. Only four episodes of the series have survived. A year later, CBS relaunched the series and cast Gerald Moore to star as Philip Marlowe. Moore brilliantly captured Marlowe and the style of Chandler. This production ran from September 26, 1948 to September 29, 1950, with an additional short summer run from July 7 to September 15, 1951. The show was received much better, and by 1949, the show had the largest audience in radio. And now, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, The Iron Coffin, originally broadcast July 12th, 1950. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Get this, and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum, the refreshing, delicious treat that gives you chewing enjoyment, presents for your listening enjoyment Raymond Chandler's most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. Here's a taste treat you can enjoy indoors, outdoors, at work, or at play. The cool, long-lasting mint flavor refreshes you. The smooth, steady chewing helps keep you fresh and alert. Adds enjoyment to whatever you're doing. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. Healthful, refreshing, delicious. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum are glad to bring you tonight's exciting story... The Iron Coffin.
Yes, sir, Colin. I wouldn't touch your proposition with someone else's ten-foot pole. Period. Furthermore, I... Hello? Would you connect me with Mr. Marlowe, please? Philip Marlowe, the private investigator. This is Philip Marlowe. Oh, I'm so glad I caught you. Mr. Marlowe, you've been very highly recommended to me by a very dear friend, and I want to employ your services for a a case. All right, who are you? I'm Catherine Newbold. Uh Uh-huh. It's about my daughter, Irene, or or more exactly, about her fiancé. I want you to find him for me. He's 26, dark complexioned, about 5 feet 10. Oh, just a minute, Mrs. Newbold. It's a little early for descriptions. What's the nature of his disappearance? Mr. Marlowe. Yeah? I'm afraid I I just can't explain over the phone. I'm at the boy's place now. Would you come over here? It's 4220 Bronx. 4220 huh? You see, Bennett is lost, and Irene's gone to help him, and... She may get lost, too. Well, how do you mean that, Mrs. Newball? Lost where? Back somewhere in the 16th century. After she hung up, I spent a few minutes trying to decide if I should take along my 38 or a butterfly net. But in spite of what I thought she'd said about the 16th century, I was convinced that Mrs. Newbold was a genuinely worried woman. I'd sold myself on that by the time I hit Bronson Avenue. When I finally found number 4220 and a half, I began to unsell myself fast. Said 4220 and a half was a sagging second floor of a weed-ridden tile and stucco heap on the alley, in back of a dead delicatessen. The windows were heavily shuttered behind rusty iron grills, and the heavy door was set at the top of a narrow flight of unreliable wooden stairs. Mr. Marlowe? I'm Mrs. Newbold. Hello. <laughs> the looks of this place on the outside, I, uh... Holy smoke. It's rather bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, to say the very least. But these are Bennett Virago's rooms. He's a student. Of what, alchemy? <laughs> His place is a museum. Everything in here must date back to the... Yes, to the 16th century. That's what you said, yeah. That's what I meant. Mr. Marlowe... Two years ago, when my daughter met Bennett, he was a nice, normal boy with a great enthusiasm for history. Uh He's brilliant. I liked him, and Irene, of course, fell madly in love with him. But then... Then what, Mrs. Newbold? Then it began to change. He was working awfully hard toward his doctor's degree when suddenly he... He seemed to hit a snag. How do you mean? Well, he became obsessed with a particular period in history. Spanish history. (laughs) Well, that's not so unusual. That's how guys become specialists. Oh, but it's more than that. His interest was much more than scholarly. It became a morbid fascination. Oh? Look at these relics, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. At first, Bennett only studied them. But in the last year, he began to live with these things exclusively. More and more until... Until he left a month ago. And now... Well, I, I just don't know. You know, my guess is the boy needs a psychiatrist, not a private detective. Where's he now? Well, I'm not sure, but this morning a note came from Irene. It was mailed in Santa Barbara two days ago, the day she left. She might be with him. Yeah, but you said you had an idea where they might be. I do. See this book? Yeah. It's a castle. Constructed in the year 1540 by 
Peter the Cruel of Lerma, near the present city of Valdemoro. Seized in 1562 after a violent struggle by the Count of Castile. Dominique Virago. Yes. And look oh. here. I found this old newspaper clipping in that book there. Uh-huh. It's about that very castle. It says it was torn down in 1887 by an eccentric millionaire bachelor and rebuilt stone for stone on an isolated part of the California coast known as Point Estero. Uh-huh. The man who spent his entire fortune on this single project was Philip Virago. For Pete's sake. And that's where they are. They must be. Well, considering what we started with, that makes sense. I looked it up, Mr. Marlowe. Point Estero is just above Morro Bay, about 200 miles north of here. Will you go up there and and find out what's wrong? Uh, I'm awfully worried. I told her the transplanted castles from Spain were not exactly my cup of tequila. But between the check she handed me and the look in her eyes, I, I figured a drive along the beach might do me good. Well, I made Santa Barbara by 4, and by 6.30 I was watching the surly Pacific surf hurl itself at the huge granite lump called Morrow Rock. Farther north I got, the manner the ocean became. A hulking bank of solid black clouds offshore made a hollow mockery out of daylight savings time. And 20 miles beyond Morrow Bay, I had to turn out my lights. By rough calculation, the castle was another 10. When 11.7 had turned up on the speedometer without so much as a single battlement in view... I decided to turn my lights back on again and stop for some local advice. My first chance was a combination motor court, restaurant, and mobile gas station. Labeled Summit Light, California. L. Chester Poindexter Prop. Howdy, friend. Bad night to be out on the road, huh? What do you have? Yeah, a cup of coffee. Okay. Driving on up north? No. No, as a matter of fact, I'm looking for that old Spanish castle that's along this coast somewhere. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Got any idea how I can get there? You got business here? Yeah, I might have. Why? Just wondered. Mm. Not a good place, mister. Folks in these parts like to forget it's here. Oh? <sighs> What's wrong with it? Nothing, maybe. Then again, well, it was built 60 years ago by a madman, mister. Brought it over here from Spain, complete, even to the furniture. Mm, so I hear you. They say it belonged to his ancestors, and he brought them, too. Every one of their bodies. Their coffins are down there under that castle right now. Thirteen of them. How do you know? I talked to an old-timer once who helped put that place together. Seven men died on that job. And you know what he told me? One of them coffins is iron, and it's eight feet long. <sighs> you made a great fullback here. Fill it up again, will you? It ain't funny. They say his name was Peter the Cruel. Now, look, Chester, you're not lathering yourself up into a ghost story for tourists, are you? You asked me, and I'm telling you. All I asked you was how to get there. You see that light out there? Hmm? Across the bay and past the breakwater? Wait till she comes around again. There, see it? Yeah. That's up on the summit of Point Estero. Well, the castle's just a mile past that. There's not much of a road in, but you can make it. Okay, thanks. It's right down next to the water. In a nasty, jagged little cove. Altogether, it's three miles from here. Much obliged. There's something else you might keep in mind. Huh? Like I said, I, I don't hold with ghosts. But I know for a fact them coffins are sealed in a crypt under that castle. But they don't stay put. They get thrown around. Folks have heard them thumping. Good night, friend.
highway dropped down close to the quiet bay, which was sheltered by the breakwater. And a hundred yards out, a white sailboat, its mast pointing straight up at the stars. It made a strange contrast to the pounding surf a mile beyond, where I found the turnoff to the castle. It beat a year's depreciation out of my car in ten minutes. But finally, at the top of a small rise, I saw it. The Spanish castle. It was a grim, gray mess of crooked walls and twisted towers that crouched on the shore like something that had crawled up from the bottom of the sea. When I pulled to a stop in front of the main gate, I saw there were lights in one of the lower rooms. I started in and then I saw something else. A girl running down the path toward me. You! You there, wait! Please wait! Oh, you've got to help me. Somebody's going to be killed. Killed? In there, in the castle? Yes. Oh, hurry, please. All right, come on. Thank heaven I saw your headlights. I'm glad I found you, Miss Newbold. How did you know? I guess right. What do you mean? Well, your mother was pretty sure I'd find you here. I'm a private detective, Philip Marlowe. Oh. What's this about somebody being killed? It's Bennett. He's almost out of his mind, Mr. Marlowe. He's gone down to the crypt under the castle. I tried to stop him, but I couldn't. He's killed down there, just like the others. Like what others, Irene? All the other Viragos, all his ancestors. Peter's a cruel old killer. Oh, now, just a minute. Come on. I must sound crazy, too. Maybe I am. Horrible oh, place. Oh, baby, baby, take it easy. This is the age of rocket planes and bebop, remember? Not in here. Here is the 16th century. Oh, settle down. Tell me what's really going on. I am. Day before yesterday, I, I was just as skeptical as you are. That's why I came here. But now, Mr. Marlowe Bennett Virago is fighting a battle that's been going on for 400 years. A battle with a monster called Peter the Cruel. The one in the oversized iron coffin downstairs? <laughs> yes. Hmm. Come on, baby, show me. What I could see in the light of the four candles in the holder I picked up, I didn't like. She led me first down a long flight of stairs, then through a maze of ponderous arched pillars that made the catacombs seem cozy by comparison. Finally, we stopped in front of a heavy door with an iron ring in it. I hauled it open and almost fell in. We were at the top of a deep, circular room, carved from solid bedrock. Stairs that must have been designed by a reckless mountain goat followed the curving wall down to the bottom. And there, in the light of a torch stuck in a bracket, a man was working frantically over a big trap door set in the center of the floor. It was Bennett Virago. I told Irene to go back upstairs and wait, and then I started down. Philip Marlowe. I'm a friend of Irene. She told me I'd find you down here. Get out of here. I refuse to be responsible. I'll be responsible for me, fella. I'm used to it. Hey, you sure you can't use some help? You look pretty tired. I'm exhausted. And I'm not going to stop until I've settled this business once and for all. And I won't tolerate any interference. Do you understand? No. Interference in what? I'm going to spend the night in the crypt under this door. I've got to know the truth. Listen. If you're really Irene's friend... Please take her away into town, that Poindexter's place. She's not safe here. Nobody is. Every document I found verifies it. Verifies what? Mr. Marlowe, I'll show you. On one condition. Give me your word that once I'm in there and the store is closed, you'll leave here and take Irene with you. Well? Okay, Virago, it's a deal. Show me. All right. Take that crowbar and help me get this open. Okay. Tonight I broke the seals that were put on this door 30 years ago. At that time, the coffins were in three straight rows. And now... I know what I'm going to find. 
It's happened before. Hey, Buster, this thing is heavy. You'll never open it from the inside by yourself. Servant Ramiro has his orders. Get it up in the morning. Quick. Drop it with your bar. I got it. Well, Virago. Stay back. Don't move until I get the torch down there. Now. Look. I saw walls slimy with pale moss. A rotten stone floor scarred with deep fissures. The coffins that had been in three neat rows were scattered in crazy confusion. But that wasn't enough. In the middle of it all was the iron one, eight feet long, standing right straight up on end. Now maybe you'll believe me. Virago, listen, wait a minute. Maybe you better think this over. You gave me your word. Yeah, but no kid threw those coffins around like that. Now you're beginning to understand. Get out, Marlowe. Get out fast. Heaven only knows what might happen here tonight. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, delicious spearmint chewing gum. The lively, full-bodied, real mint flavor cools your mouth, moistens your throat, freshens your taste. And the chewing itself gives you a little lift, helps you keep going at your best. So for real chewing enjoyment that's refreshing and long-lasting, always keep Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum handy. Healthful, delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Gum will make every day more enjoyable. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's exciting story, The Iron Coffin. I kept telling myself that Virago wasn't in any danger. That this was 1950 and spirits from the 16th century didn't stand a... a ghost of a chance against a determined man. But I couldn't quite believe it. And things didn't get any cozier as I watched the man with the obsession descend into the crypt. A candle in his hand, casting a crazy chorus of shadow dancers against the dripping wet walls. After the trapdoor crashed shut, I kept holding on tight to the 20th century and things that made it tick. And that helped until I was back up to the basement level. A moment of your time, please, senor. A tangle of gray, black, shaggy hair fell all around a grisly old face that could have scared a Halloween mask. And the rest of them fit from a build that included almost no shoulders, ape-long, scrawny arms, and an outfit that was medieval. I did not mean to alarm you, senor. Yeah, you couldn't miss. It's uh, so dark in here. You're, you're Ramiro? Si, Ramiro. Huh. I, senor, wait upon the master of this house, even as my father did, and his father before him. Always, senor, Aramiro has been in service in this castle. Always since Peter de Cruel. You mean you came over here from Spain, you were imported with this castle? Si, si, indeed. It had to be that way, senor. None else but Aramiro knows the castle. Every stone, every fixture... Every sound in the night. Why, senor, there where you stand, 
Ramiro stood on that fateful day in the year 1562 when Dominic Verago, the Count of Castile, sentenced Peter the Cruel to his death. Oh, it was an awesome occasion, senor. Albert. The story of that day lives in my mind as though I had been present. I hear and see it all. Hear and see the fantastic spectacle in this very room. The place lighted by flaming torches. The prisoner was Peter the Crow. His legs bound in heavy chains and weighted with an iron ball. The crowd shot Dominique Verago, Count of Castile, to this day proclaim the tyrannical rule of the prisoner before me at an end. And I do further proclaim that the prisoner, Peter the Cruel, be hanged, wearing the shackles and weights of a common thief. And when his body is dead, I order it cut down and sealed in an iron coffin, the chains not removed. by right of the royal blood of our fathers do I allow his remains to be placed in the family crypt below this room. Now, Peter the Cruel, you have heard this sentence. How do you speak? <laughs> I speak, dear righteous ruler, very plainly. This, the day of my execution, is a black day. A black day for you, Dominique Virago, for Castile, for Spain. For in spirit I will not die, not go to the crypt below. In spirit I will not rest until I have had my revenge through all the years that follow this day. This black day! You and your ancestors, beware, Virago! And that, senor, they did hang him and buried him below us. That is why I stopped you here, to warn you. Yes, well, uh, tell me, Ramiro, your ancestors, whose side were they on? The Count of Peter the Cruel. Well? The Ramiro serve only one man, senor. The master of the house. Even as I today serve only one man. The master of the house. Mm. Good night, senor. He glared at me for a long moment with sickly yellow eyes. Then he stepped back and was gone. Well, a few minutes later, I found Irene Newbold and told her what had happened at the crypt and of Virago's wish that she spend the night at Poindexter's place. When I saw her make one valiant try to keep from going to pieces, I picked up a coat and bag, held her firmly by the arm, and walked her fast outside into my car. It kept her thinking for a while. When we arrived at Poindexter's, I promised to awaken her at dawn for the return trip to the castle. She thanked me and went to her room, and a few minutes later, I went to mine. After three hours of cigarette-filled sleeplessness had gone by, I 
slipped outside and watched the summit light that winked at me every third second. Eh, I didn't wink back. And the sight of El Chester Poindexter standing at the cliff's edge ahead, looking toward the bay below and the long, wide wash of the full moon didn't help any. How'd do, Mr. Marlowe? Trouble sleeping? Yeah, your local ghost made good. He keeps propping my eyelids open. And you don't feel up to much smart joking either, huh, Mr. Marlowe? Poindexter, I'm worried about Virago. And you should be. That Peter the Cruel was certainly a powerful party. Oh, nuts to Peter the Cruel. There's another answer there's got to be. But you said Virago. Yeah, and I meant Virago. Virago in his own mind. He won't even look for another answer. He'll keep fighting ghosts until the boys in the white jackets with court orders call for him. And then there's Irene. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you were saying... Hey, Poindexter. Look out there. See out there that boat anchored in the bay? That's the same one I saw from the road before, isn't it? The road I took to the castle? Sure. Only sailboat around here. Spring tide certainly has her dipping for moss tonight, huh? Certainly has. Her, me, and a lot of other things, including the fact that our boy who's chasing ghosts is going to be killed by something very real. If we don't get a move on, come on, come on. We're all going to the castle in a big hurry. Marlowe, are you sure you're right? I can't believe the answer's that simple. Doesn't matter, Irene. Simple or not, it can still kill. Come on, point, Dexter. We're going to run for it. Every second counts now. You catch up to us, Irene. We're going ahead. Poindexter followed me as I ran into the castle and down the stone stairs to the basement and along the passageway that led to the spot above the crypt where I first met Marimo. But we both slammed to a stop at the sight of something I couldn't expect to find this side of the Dark Ages. It was Ramiro again. Only this time, minus his apron and long winter underwear and plus a head-to-toe black coat of mail with a shiny steel helmet spike on top, tucked underneath his arm. And in one hand, a lantern that swung to and fro with his cackling. In the other, a long sword, vintage lady of the lake... Senor, they're fighting down there in the creep. A Virago, the last of the Viragos, and Peter the Cruel. Peter, who is to have his revenge. Get out, <laughs> Come on, point. That's the way. we got to get the store open. No, no, stop. Get off. Is Bennett all right? I don't know yet. Watch that jerk in the fancy dress. If he gets up, yell. Come on, point Dexter. We gotta get this door open. Come on. It's coming. Look! The crypt is filled with water, just like you said. Help me. Oh, Bennett. Bennett, thank heaven you're all right. Virago, here. Take my hand. Reach for it. There we are. Couldn't have lasted another minute. The water came through the cracks in the floor. And the coffins. They floated. That's right. They're bumping against the sides of the crypt as the thumping sound you people have heard. Yes. And when the water subsides again, the coffins will be scattered all over. Oh, Bennett, darling, you see, it's no angry spirit. Yes, but... But why the water, Mr. Marlowe, and why... Why does Peter the Cruel's coffin always stand on end upright? Where does the water come from? The sea, the sea. There's an unusually high tide tonight. Uh, spring tide, they call it. Right, Poindexter? Right. Happens when the sun and the moon are in either direct conjunction or opposition. You see, the castle's so close to the ocean and the crypt so deep that the water seeps in as the tide rises. Oh, I see. And as for Peter the Cruel, he settles upright because the old boy was buried in his coffin with his bondage chain still wrapped around his feet, according to legend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ask Ramiro there. I'll be glad to tell you all about oh, it. Sen- senor, senor, it is more than legend. It is truth. 
true, sir, then no case. Oh, shut up, Ramiro. Had enough of you and your stories. Mr. Marlowe, how did you know? I mean... I mean, what got you here in time? How did you think of a spring tide, Mr. Marlowe? Well, it was a sailboat anchored in the bay, Irene. You know, when I first saw it, its mast pointed straight up at the stars. When I saw it again, hours later, it was dipped forward sharply because the anchor chain had been pulled tight by the rising tide. Well, that gave me the hunch I needed. The hunch we needed, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'm glad to be out of the 16th century, and you know something? What? I think I'll stay out. Well, it was another hour before we left the strange relic of another day. An hour in which everybody found himself thinking of Peter the Cruel's vengeful spirit. Oh, well. The tide took care of him. Oh, did you hear that? Uh, uh, no, no. Yeah, well, as I was saying, that's the beauty of reality. Yeah, you can figure everything out. Hello, there it is again. Oh, that's nothing. It's probably just the wind. Oh, look, that figure up on the rampart. Figure? Ramparts? Uh, oh, <laughs> well, that's Ramiro. Or is it? Remember, friends, to make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to refreshing, delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. There's lots of cooling, real mint flavor in every stick. And chewing Wrigley's Spearmint helps keep you feeling fresh and alert. You feel better, work better, get more fun out of doing things. So indoors, outdoors, wherever you go, keep some healthful, refreshing Wrigley's Spearmint chewing gum handy. To make every day more enjoyable, treat yourself often to delicious Wrigley's Spearmint chewing gum. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, presented by Wrigley's Spearmint Gum, bring you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and star, Gerald Moore. Philip Marlowe is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, Lillian Bieff, David Ellis, Jay Novello, Parley Bear, Barney Phillips, and Edgar Barrier. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum... Hope you've enjoyed tonight's adventure of Philip Marlowe and that you're enjoying Wrigley's Spearmint Gum every day. We invite you to be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a dying man's last wish led me from a gunman with orders to stop me past a battered corpse in a crumbling mansion to a ruthless redhead playing for keeps. And when it was over, the one in the middle got away with everything. Except the dying man's last wish. This is Bob Stevenson speaking, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and the episode The Iron Coffin here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. All right. And that was a listener request from Ryan. And I'll start this by saying that I have never listened to a Philip Marlowe before. And uh, I can't tell you how much fun I had because of how this is written and performed. I love what uh, Gerald Moore does as the detective and how he delivers it. And I don't think it was corny and over the top. I found it to be very straightforward delivery. It didn't feel like wink, wink, you know, tongue in cheek kind of approach. And just from that perspective, the writing and, and I've got a whole list of lines (laughs) from this episode that were just phenomenal. I really enjoyed that to the point where I will start this by saying, I am going to listen to more Philip Marlowe. I also found online while I was researching that uh, Richard Diamond is mm-hmm. kind of like the poor uh, stepson of <laughs> Philip Marlowe. And I can see why they said that, because I think this is much better than the Richard Diamond series. <laughs> <laughs> but I, not surprisingly, am more of a Raymond Chandler purist. I love those books. I've read them all three or four times. I yeah. like Dick Powell's performance you... as Philip Marlowe the best. Wow. I think he's better than Bogart. Wow. Bogart just Richard... plays Bogart in the films. Diamond would be more of a direct... Line from Sam Spade. I mean, if the card suit convention of naming is my clue for that. I think there's an argument there, but Sam Spade had less of a sense of humor, and the Richard Diamond. Yeah, I guess um, I always thought Richard Diamond was sort of a parody of Sam Spade. Or parody of Philip Marlowe. They all get kind of blurred together, and there are some distinctions. We could do a whole nerdy podcast on that. (laughs) Did you read the Chandler books uh, just before the podcast? (laughs) No. Just for the podcast <laughs> and read them all three or four times. Yep, just on my way over. Just on the way over. Yeah. Uh, so then as someone who is much more familiar with the reading of the books, does it hit the mark with Chandler's style? Oh, I like Gerald Moore quite a lot. I think yeah. he does a really good job having a certain sense of sarcasm, a little wit about him, but still being tough. Mm-hmm. And this episode is a bit of an outlier, I think, in mm-hmm. style and tone mm-hmm. for the Philip Marlowe stories. Obviously, we get an almost Scooby-Doo-ish supernatural thing that mm-hmm. Marlowe doesn't believe could really be supernatural. And that's not really the style of a Raymond Chandler story, but I think it's done really well here. Yeah, so not buying into the supernatural part of it was actually something I really enjoyed. Uh, so if we take a line, and, and I'm going to relate this to Moore's performance in this, it's very straightforward. He delivers the lines without delivering the lines in the sense of, get it? Uh, take along my 38 or my butterfly net. You know, and it's not take along my 38 or my butterfly net, (laughs) you know, it just throws them away. And I think that's really captures that style. And it was really a great performance of that. Yeah. You got to rattle off those lines or or else they're too much. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Lean into them. It's going to just drag the whole thing down. Right. And that's where it becomes corny. And that's why I don't think it was corny at all. There's Uh, a moment where he does a slight pause before one of the lines, like either Philip Marlowe's deciding whether he's gone a, a step too far with it or if Philip Marlowe is actually judging the script. But there is that <laughs> moment when he's saying, uh, you know, I tried to remind myself that this was 1950 and ghosts from the 1600s yes. didn't stand a ghost of a chance. Right. But the fact that he rattles them all off earlier makes that one work. Yes. There's a, a style to noir writing, which is just cutting all your adverbs. <laughs> right. Like yes. if you don't need a word, for the most part, you get rid of it. Right. 
uh, I began to unsell myself and fast uh, is a great line. I wouldn't touch you with someone else's 10-foot pole. <laughs> I'm a um, fan of a year's worth of depreciation in 10 minutes. Yes. I think that's my favorite. And the clouds made a mockery of daylight savings time. <laughs> There's some great lines, but I mean, I don't think any of them can be topped by just the brutal, hard-boiled opening of this show. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. I mean, it's just like... (laughs) See? Yeah. Like, you don't have the balls to listen to this show. Turn it off now. But speaking of Bebop, that preview of next week's episode was a roller coaster ride of words and images. (laughs) Last dead man's wish, walking past the middle of woman... (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about the the actual plot itself and the actual story itself. As you mentioned, the idea is I'm not buying into this being supernatural. Of course, it wasn't. Uh, There's a plausible explanation. Our hero figures that out. I really liked the resolution. The hints to that were he saw the mast of the ship driving up and points out that it's straight up in the air. Mm -hmm. So when he sees it again, he says, wait a minute, that's slightly Mm -hmm. tilted. And it all I found a plausible resolution for a mystery. I like that. I like being able to be brought along and go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then the chains are on the guy. So that's why that one, the eight foot Mm -hmm. metal uh, iron coffin is straight up. So I liked the mystery and the resolution of it. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Two points about it that I love is that they utilize the fact that the hard-boiled detective has to describe everything incessantly. Right. right? And so the description of the boat is buried in all sorts of other description. Mm -hmm. So in another radio show, that might stand out when you stop and suddenly describe a boat in great detail. But here, it's like everything he looks at has to be. Right. You have to throw tons of adjectives on top of it and tell, tell you all about it. I also just really like that it was not a reveal that there was someone behind this a la Scooby-Doo, right. as we mentioned before. that For a while, I was like, oh, okay, it's going to be Poindexter, or right. it's going to be Ramirez, who was a total red herring. Yeah. We literally he actually had was a... wearing a shirt that said red herring. He <laughs> <I know>. had <laughs> a literal natural explanation mm-hmm. for this supernatural thing, and there was no bad guy. I don't know right. if it's the, the genre or just my habits of listening, but I kept assuming in the back of my mind that there was some murder, that some actual crime had happened that was being investigated, that when I stopped to think of, no, that no one did die, no one's been, nothing's been stolen. Right. Uh, other than seven people died in the uh, construction, construction of this castle. Which there was a confusing moment that I thought those coffins were those construction workers that had been buried in the castle. And then I went, no, no, those were brought over with the castle from Spain and were still there. But it was seven coffins in there and seven construction workers died. Those are two separate things. But has anyone ever done the construction worker ghosts haunting a site? That would actually actually, be quite effective. I I think that's a thing. It's like a ghost union. (laughs) (laughs) But he takes 15-minute cigarette breaks. Yes. (laughs) Every 15 minutes. (laughs) Um, What I didn't like about this was... They were fine until the last two sentences. Yeah. Totally agree with you. They yep. ruined it by doing the they, wacky. The wa- or, or was it? it? Yeah. Well, what are you doing? I, I could not hear that without having the parenthetical. Oh, no. No, it was. <laughs> I assumed that it was what was meant to be. Was it? No. Yeah. No. no, no. I'm just kidding. Of course. That's <laughs> He's crazy. Look at him out there on uh, the ramparts. I know it's in a song, the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I really don't know what a rampart is. 
like on a hill in the distance? No, it's a part of the actual castle. Oh. It's on the walls, right? I guess I don't know specifically either. Like the battlements, the... So kind of like walking along uh, the wall is what I imagined. Flying buttress. Thank you. It was a flying buttress is what he saw. Easily confused with a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So they see him and they go, well, that's... Ramirez. Ramirez. Yeah. Or is it? Well, no, you just left the castle. He was in there, and there he is. Why would you even throw that line in there? Of course Because it can. sounds like Ramirez in the background, <laughs> yeah. and Ridiculous. it was totally out of character for Philip Barber. Yeah. Too. The whole fourth wall was just utterly broken right there, and it's too bad because it was so well done up to that moment. Mm-hmm. Now I know what a rampart is. That's good. And that <laughs> I don't now, know how you got an actual definition of what we said, but yes. <laughs> well, I, I didn't have any idea what it was. It was part of a castle really narrowed it down for me, or part of a structure or the ramparts we watched, now I understand where they were when Francis Scott Key wrote the song. <laughs> I know exactly. I can picture where he was now. I love the music in this episode. Yeah. It's really good. Great stings and classic uh, noir sounding stuff. I also wrote this down, and I don't know if anybody else listening cares, but this would be a really good episode for us to do, I thought. I think it would be a lot of fun to perform live. I think it has great foley. I like the storyline. I like the characters. I like all of them. You might have to tone down Ramiro or yeah. a little bit, yeah, because he's just... <laughs> Not only is he so over the top, but like everyone just hates him. Like, get this Spaniard out of my face. Shut up. (laughs) You couldn't contribute anything to this. The flashback. He starts describing the trial of... Peter the Cruel? Peter the Cruel, yes. I got confused. I didn't see it as a flashback at first. I thought, oh, are these ghosts coming to life and performing this in front of him? I didn't really... Well, radio asks you to use your imagination, Eric, but that might have been far too much imagination. Good one. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) It had a weird effect that I couldn't... I really liked it because I just thought it was a nice structural break. Yes. I felt it read really clearly with a crossfade. I think it had to suggest while they were recounting the story to fade into enacting it. Yes. It also gave a a huge plot point. You're going to be buried with your chains on. So, you know, that helps. It breaks it up so that you don't have to have just exposition. And don't have to listen to that Ramirez guy talk. Yeah. (laughs) It's another question. So they moved the castle from Spain all the way over to California. Mm -hmm. Uh Is that plausible? You'd have to do it brick by brick, I guess, and rebuild it. Mm -hmm. It's Um, been done. Okay. Wow. Really? Yes. That seems like a complete waste of yes. a lifetime. Here in Minneapolis, we moved the Cowl Center a few blocks. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> painful <Local to> reference. <laughs> <laughs> but he was portrayed so now, as a crazy man who did this, a crazy rich right. guy. Now to peek into my head. All right, so I didn't understand if they did a brick by brick or they just kind of picked it up and you know put it on a boat and big one <laughs> brought it over. And in my head, they did it that way, and then I couldn't figure out. Well, did Ramirez just hide? as they moved it or was he invited to come with it but now i understand that he probably was invited he wasn't just hiding in the basement (laughs) but it was much better that way in my head fell asleep (laughs) woke up in california (laughs) so uh any other uh thoughts or uh opinions I thoroughly enjoyed it. I liked yeah. it as a um, subversion of the usual gritty realism of these detective stories to have Philip Marlowe dragged into this seeming ghost story. Or even at the beginning, is a nice hook, almost like a time travel story when mm-hmm. it, uh, her mother shows up and says, you know, she's lost in the 1600s. Dun, right. dun, dun. 
I say it was really well done. It stands the test of time for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think this definitely stands the test of time. And I would recommend to you, Eric, or other listeners to check out in contrast to this. I think it's the first episode of the Gerald Moore run. They do a adaptation of a Chandler short story, one of his classics, uh, Red Wind. Okay. And it'd be interesting to hear something in contrast to this sort of outlier, uh, supernatural Philip Marlowe story. Yeah, I think the the Raymond Chandler aspects are a lot of fun and really good in this. I think, but it's the outlier aspect that was really fun for me. Of it's like a mashup, a really early sort of mashup. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again, Ryan, for suggesting Thanks, that. Ryan. And that was a lot of fun and well chosen for this podcast. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. If you want to know more, please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. You can find other episodes of this podcast, as well as information about our upcoming live shows. We're going to be returning to the James J. Hill Center uh, last Sunday of every month for the next few months, uh, performing live versions of old classical radio scripts. Yes, and go to iTunes and write a review of this podcast. If you like it, let other people know. Write it as if it looks like it was written by a ghost, but it turns out it's actually just a natural disaster of a review. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> Maybe it's just some crazy Spaniard on a rampart <laughs> writing this review. <laughs> Good tie-in. Nice job, gentlemen. Yeah. All right, what's our next episode? Who's got it? Oh, it's me. Hey, uh, we'll be listening to another listener request. Uh, this one called Weekend Vacation from a series called The Darkness. Until then. Look out! Or is it? Oh, no. No, it was. Rampart?